Our scripture reading for the sermon is Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, and you can turn there with me or just listen along as I read for us. This is the word of the Lord, Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, and we'll read uh, through to the end of the chapter. And when Jesus had crossed again into in the boat uh, to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she might be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there is a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some uh, who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? But overhearing uh, what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the uh, child's father and mother with those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray and ask God's blessing now on our time together in his word. Jesus, we pray that you will bless us with your word this morning. Uh, even as we, uh, like the, the people we see in this passage, our, our faith can be weak at times, uh, like, like the woman in our story, like, like Jairus. We can't always see the bigger picture of what you're doing in our lives, but we know that you work all things according to your great love for us, for our good, for our salvation. So encourage us with these words this morning, we pray. Uh, by your Holy Spirit, do that work in us. Uh, through faith, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, have you ever been waiting on God? Have you ever wrestled with the timing of something? 
important going on in your life? Have you ever wondered, where's God at in this story? Where's God at in my life? What's he doing? Where's he at? I need you. This is what our, our, our characters, this is what they struggled with. We see some very clear connections in these two, uh, these two episodes, these two interconnected stories between this, this unknown woman and, and uh, this, this young girl. We see that the young girl, she's 12 years old. We're also told that the woman has been suffering from this hemorrhage for, for 12 years, for the exact same amount of time. Uh, likely a member of the, the group of the Pharisees. And we know how the Pharisees, what they believed about Jesus. They were already conspiring to, to get rid of him. So here we have these two completely different people. We have a, a wealthy, influential, uh, high-class uh, male, well-respected in this community, and then we have this unknown woman who was an outcast, a social pariah. She was unclean. We have a ruler of the synagogue, and we have someone who would be barred from ever attending the synagogue. They could not have been more different in terms of their status in society. This well-thought-of prominent man, this, this unclean and dejected woman. When she went to touch Jesus, we, it's hard for us to put into words to understand exactly what she's going through. But this might have been the first, other than the physicians maybe who were treating her, this might have been the first physical contact she's had in 12 years when she finally comes and and grabs hold of Jesus. And yet, both of these people, completely different situations, completely different status in life, they had one thing in common. They both desperately needed Jesus. They both needed Jesus. But here's the thing. They didn't know what they really needed from Jesus. They were desperate for him, but he was going to teach them. He was going to show them that they didn't understand their true needs. And maybe Jesus is doing that for you this morning. Maybe he's using his confusing timing to to teach you what you truly need. So this is what Jesus does. Are we wrestling with, with God's timing in our lives? Do, uh, do we need him to work in our lives, but do we feel like our pleas are falling on deaf ears? His timing, it may be confusing, it's perplexing to us, but his timing is always perfect, and he's always teaching us something through it. So this is the confusing timing of Jesus and the lessons we can learn from his timing. That's how I want to tackle this passage this morning. I want to first consider just how perplexing, just how mind-boggling, even upsetting Jesus' decisions and his timing is here in this passage to us, but then the lessons that we learn from it, the lessons and applications from his timing. But first, the confusing timing of Jesus. Let's look at the bigger story going on here. We have the synagogue ruler, and we have this woman who's, who's barred from the synagogue. But the synagogue ruler, he comes to Jesus first. Jesus had just arrived back in Capernaum. He had crossed the Sea of Galilee. He, he calmed the hurricane. And he uh, drove out the legion. And now he's, uh, Mark tells us that he's crossed again from the sea to the other side. And there's already a huge crowd waiting for him. The news that already broke, Jesus is coming back. There's a huge crowd waiting for him. And in that crowd is this man. This ruler of the synagogue, who at this point, now, he's willing to risk his own credibility. He's willing to risk everything in coming to Jesus. 
His religious colleagues, they've already determined who Jesus is. They've already made uh, that determination. They've pronounced their judgment on Jesus. But none of that matters anymore because his 12-year-old daughter is sick and at the point of death. Nothing else matters. I know we have a lot of parents in the room. You can put yourself in his shoes. Nothing matters. His little girl is sick. Nothing else matters at that point. Do you feel that desperation that he has? It doesn't matter his own pride, his own outward appearance, what others might think of him. None of that matters to him. He just needs his daughter to be better, to be saved. That's where he's at. He comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet. Please, Jesus, I know you can heal my daughter. Please come and heal my daughter. He's seen the other miracles. He, he knows the stories about Jesus, what he's done. But now he's at a point of desperation where he needs Jesus to act in his life. His daughter's death is imminent. We don't know what happened to her, but we know it's, it's horrible. It's terrible. It couldn't be any worse. She's going to die unless Jesus intervenes. So can you feel the alleviation and the joy he must have felt when Jesus said, okay, let's go. It's like, oh, what, what great news. But there's still that sense of, of fear. Like we, we, need to, we need to hurry. Time is of the essence here. We have no time to spare. So he has this mix of, of great relief, but also of dread and anxiety. Will they make it there in time to save his daughter? He was wanting a high-speed ambulance. He, he, he needed this, this escort to, to speed him over there, to get there quickly. So can you imagine his dejection then when Jesus starts walking? Like, Jesus, we need you to run. Let's hurry. But Jesus starts walking, and then a great crowd throngs around him. And now they're trying to sift their way through the crowd. They, they're trying to get to his daughter. And then, what must have been absolute horror and shock to Jairus is that as they're trying to weave their way through the crowd, he's weaving his way. He's like, come on, Jesus, let's go. He turns around, and now he's stopped. <laughs> and he's talking to some random woman. Jesus, what are you doing? My daughter's dying. Now here, this is the baffling, this is the, the crazy, uh, completely confusing timing of Jesus. I think we have at least one ER doc in the room. Uh, if, if I'm right, uh, you can uh, give me a thumbs up, but if I'm wrong, you can correct me later. But think about patients being admitted to the ER and the, and the triage that has to happen when they come in. And, and how uh, horrible is Jesus' attention to detail here? A woman comes to him, immediate attention. She could have waited another hour. But on the other hand, we have this young girl with this very acute condition that's, that's threatening her very life. She's going to die unless someone helps her. These two women, they come into the ER. Which one needs to be treated first? This is medical malpractice. What is Jesus doing here? At least it was in the eyes of, of Jairus and, and the others there. But you see, he doesn't see the full picture. We, we have the full picture in front of us. We know what Jesus is about to do, but he doesn't. And, and sure enough, finally, as Jesus finishes his conversation with this, uh, this bleeding woman, 
some of his servants come from his household and say, it's, it's too late. Maybe we had a chance, but, but now it's, it's too late. Your daughter's dead. Why, why trouble him anymore? But Jesus turns to him. He, he hears what they're saying. He turns to them. And he tells him, do not fear. Only believe. What's going on in his head at that moment? As Jesus continues now walking toward his home. What, what, Jesus, what are you going to do? It's too late. Do not fear. Only believe. How could he have known? But Jesus was going to raise his daughter back from the dead. You see, this timing of events, it's so, it's so confusing to us. We wouldn't have done it this way. Why wouldn't Jesus have rushed to this woman and uh, to the daughter, healed her first? Even maybe the woman still touches his garment and she's healed, but he says, look, I need to talk to you. You come with us. I can't talk right now, though. I have to go save this little girl. But you come with us and I'll, I'll talk to you later. Why does, he, why does he do things this way? You see, ultimately, this, it can be so confusing to us but it teaches us several lessons. And Jesus was teaching lessons to Jairus and to this woman. And he's teaching lessons to us as well. There's so many lessons we can learn from this. And I want to consider some of those lessons from this story. And the first thing we can learn from Jesus' confusing timing. The first lesson we can learn is that God delights in confounding and confusing the wisdom of the world through his grace. God's grace is always good. God's grace is so much better than we can ever think. And it's always confounding and it's confusing. It confounds the wisdom of the world. It turns the wisdom of the world upside down. God's grace to both Jairus and, and to this woman, it was so good. But he does not operate according to our wisdom and he certainly does not operate according to our time frame and our timetable. As frustrating as that can be. Jesus will not be hurried. Jesus will not be hurried by anyone. And that's because he knows better than us. We, we love to be the masters of our own domain. We want to be in charge of our own lives. We desperately do. It's, it's built into our fallen nature. And we think we can do a better job of running things. So often we, we, we don't even realize how absurd this is, but this is what we're saying when, when we think that way. This is what we're saying. Jesus, I know that you are the eternal Son of God, and I know that you're the creator of all things that exist, and I know that you uphold all things by the word of your power, but how does that give you more right over my life? Why, why does that give you more knowledge about how my life should be going? I, I think I could control this better. That's what we're saying. How would you, Jesus, how would you know better than me about how my life should be going? But you see, God's grace is so good to us, so good to you that he shatters all of our self-righteousness, all the arrogance that might think that, all of our pride. He brings that down so that he might build us back up in humility and in love and dependence upon him. He loves to bring down the proud so that he might raise us up in humility. He loves to do that. God's grace, it, it reverses and flips on the, its head all the values and all the wisdom of the world. 
God loves to do this. This is summarized, we'll see this all throughout Mark, we've seen it already, but we'll see it especially in Mark chapter 8, when, when Jesus teaches, he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the upside down nature of God's kingdom. You want to save your life? Then you must lose it. You must die to self. This is the paradox of the Christian life. True freedom in the Christian life is not that I'm free to do whatever I want, but true freedom for you is found when you submit yourself completely to Christ. Completely to Him. This is the upside-downness of the gospel of Jesus. I, I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are. The reason? So that, Paul says, no human being might boast in the presence of God. He loves to use the foolish things of the world to shame the proud and haughty and arrogant wisdom of the world. We've been studying 1 Samuel in our, our men's group on Wednesday nights, and we just read and talked about this passage and just read also the, the anointing of David as the next king of Israel. That's 1 Samuel chapter 16. But no one thought this young shepherd boy would be the next king. Nobody thought that. Not even David's own father, Jesse. So much so that he didn't even invite him along to the ceremony whether he was going to be anointed. They left him at home. Jesse didn't know which of his eight sons was going to be chosen as the next king, but he knew for sure it wasn't going to be the youngest. It wasn't going to be David. Poor David. You put yourself around the dinner table the night before the, 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 the ceremony with Samuel, and, and David, uh, Jesse's telling all his sons, one of you is going to be the next king. Well, not you, David. <laughs> you go take care of the sheep. But one of you else, you're going to be the next king. It's obvious that this, this scrawny, this young uh, shepherd boy, there's no way he's going to be the king of Israel. But who is chosen? It's this little discarded David that nobody thinks twice about. Why is he chosen? Samuel 16, verse 7, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God loves to choose what is weak and foolish in this world to shame the strong and the wise. And He will do that in your life. He will work in ways in your life that you would never expect, that would never make any sense, that you could never plan on your own that make no sense to the world and certainly don't make any sense in the moment. But God is working in your life in that way. Why does he work in this way? Why does he confuse us with his timing, with the way that he works? He does so, so that no man might boast in the presence of God. Because God will receive all the glory in your life. God will receive all the glory. He shares his glory with no one. And the good news is when we glorify him, like our confession says, our catechism says, our purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. When God's getting all the glory, we're full of joy because we're one with Him. So that's the first lesson. This is the first thing we see from, from God's timing. God's grace, it's always so good. God's grace is always so good to us. 
even and especially when it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, when his timing makes no sense, God's grace is good. But there's another lesson we learn from this. Another important lesson, hard lesson to learn. But if God is running late in your life, if God is running late, He always has a reason. Jesus is never hurried by us. He works according to his own timetable. But he's also never late in the sense of any kind of malpractice. He's always working the bigger angle. He's always working at something that you can't see. If God is delaying something in your life, we know that he's doing that for our own good and for your own good. And now we're talking about ultimate good here. Talking about our spiritual good, our life within. This is, this is no promise of uh, if you uh, uh, do this, then God will bless you materially uh, with, with wealth or whatever that might be. There's no prosperity promised to us, but, but quite the opposite. We see both of these characters have to learn this lesson in our, in our story, in our, our passage today. Consider both of them again with me. What, what did this woman need? What did she really need? Well, she'd been suffering from this internal bleeding for, for 12 years, so it's obvious what she needed. But for this woman, while she had this chronic health problem, even worse for her is she had a very acute spirit stress. See, her, her faith was placed in the right person, but it was, it was a weak, it was a superstitious, it was a, it was a weird faith. Uh, her faith was, was in Jesus, but, but in, uh, if I could just touch his garments, if I, if I could just do this, then I could be healed. That's what she says to herself, and, and she was right. But if Jesus was to let her wander back into the crowd, she would have gone away physically healed, but she would have been left spiritually dead forever. And Jesus would not have that. Because he knew what she truly needed. She needed to come and bow at his feet. She needed to confess everything to him. She needed to be received into his loving arms. She needed to put her faith not in any kind of superstitious, uh, magical working, but in the person himself, in Christ himself. And that's what he offers this woman. See, this is a good question for us to ask. And when we're doubting, when we're questioning that God's time frame and, and his timetable in our lives, the first good question to ask is, am I including Jesus in on all the details? Am I coming to him with everything I need? Or am I trying to be like this woman who I just want to receive that power and then I, I want to disappear into the crowd? I want to get in and get out. That's what this woman wanted to do. She didn't want to be seen. She, she knew her status in society. She was risking a lot of things. And, and by touching Jesus, making Jesus himself ceremonially unclean with her. But what Jesus offers her is, is it's more than what she wanted, but it's what she truly needed. And he says, your faith has made you well. You see, it's not her touching the garments. It's not any kind of a magical working like that, but it's her faith. Jesus needed a teacher. It's your faith that has made you well. Your faith in me has healed you. Yes, she was healed from her physical condition, but she had also received faith in Christ that saved her spiritually. That word for made well even is the, is the word for salvation in our Bibles. 
She has truly been saved through her faith in Christ. And now we can see the bigger picture. Now we can see the the larger story here. If she had been healed at any point within those past 12 years through some of the physicians that, that she had been working with, that she had been healed previously, she would not have been desperate to the point where she recognized her true need for Jesus. And she would not have received the spiritual healing that she truly needed. See, Jesus, he doesn't work according to our timing. But he always works his timing perfectly. And the exact same is true for Jairus. Because this man, what he thought he needed was his daughter to be healed. And we can put ourselves in his shoes. We can understand his frustration Right, at Jesus' confusing priorities to help this woman uh, before he rushed to the much more serious and time-pressing need of his, of his daughter. But what Jairus thought he needed was his daughter to be healed. But what he truly needed was to see a resurrection. That's what he needed. And Jesus knew that. See, Jairus, he's been around. He's witnessed Jesus, uh, all his healings and his miracles already. He's heard about him. He's known him. He's most likely seen some firsthand. That's why out of de- desperation, he, he goes to Jesus uh, in the first place for help. But he's already seen those miracles. He's not yet believed. But Jesus knows he needs to not fear, but only believe. He was going to see something far greater than any miracle he's seen previously. He was going to see his own daughter come back to life. That's the lesson he needed to learn. Do not fear, only believe. He needed to learn that lesson. He needed to learn the lesson that to Jesus, curing a fever and raising a little girl from the dead is the exact same thing. That's what he needed to learn. He needed to learn Jesus' power. This is exactly what he does. Uh, look again at, the, at the, the climax, the ending of this story here. We see that Jesus, he brings only his inner circle into the room, Peter, James, and John with him, with the parents of the young girl. This is going to be the greatest miracle he's done yet. And word does, can't get out yet. Uh, his time has not yet come. So he, he tells them not to tell the story, but, but we know um, that this story is eventually recorded. You know, Mark's gospel was written from the account of Peter. Mark was working with the apostle Peter, recording Peter's own thoughts. And here we have Peter uh, recounting this experience, this exact moment. This this moment in time was so pressed upon Peter that he can recount it in perfect detail. Even the very words that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, Peter has just implanted in his brain. He can still hear them as he's telling Mark about this. The very words in Aramaic, the language that, that Jesus would have spoken at the time. But Jesus takes the little girl by hand, which again, like the, like the bleeding woman, this makes him unclean, touching the, a, a corpse of a body. But he takes her by the hand, and he lifts her up, raises her back to life. I, I love this picture so much because here's Jesus. He's, he's facing death. And look at how powerless death is to Jesus. Look at how mighty your Savior is. He gently takes this little girl by the hand 
And he lifts her right up out of death itself. Death cannot hold this little girl. The greatest enemy in the human race, the greatest enemy of humanity, death itself is so powerless when it comes face to face with Jesus. His timing might not have made any sense at the moment, but it does now. Because of his delay, because of Jesus' delay, Jairus not only receives his daughter back to life, but he is received from Christ himself eternal life that can never be taken away. So we might not always understand Jesus' timing, but we know that when it seems like he's delaying, he's always, all right, he's always serving a greater purpose for us than we can know. His grace also is always better than we can ever imagine and what we could ever hope for. It confounds the wisdom of the world. Those are the lessons we can learn from this story. There's one more thing, and we're running out of time, but there's one more thing we'll close with this that I want us to see. And that's the question of certainty. That's the question of, okay, these are wonderful stories. I feel, I feel great for this woman in the story. I feel, I feel great for Jairus and his family. That's wonderful. But how can I know that when God's delaying in my life, whatever it is, that is for the same reasons? How can I be certain that these lessons that we learn from the story, that they're true for me? And here's how. We can have certainty in these things because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. That's the reason why we can have certainty in these lessons. All right, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So some quick applications for this. Who Jesus is. Jesus is a personal God. Jesus is such a loving and caring Savior. It's, it's perhaps impossible for us to understand just how desperate that, that the, the bleeding woman's situation was in that story, to put ourselves into that first century context. It might be impossible for us to understand the absolute shock that Jesus, this rabbi, this respected teacher at the time, would stop and not only talk to this woman, but to one who is unclean and cast out of society. This would have gone against every single social norm, and you can guarantee that not a single other person in the crowd would have given her the time of day. But Jesus is a personal God, and he loves meeting with messed up people like that. He loves this woman. He loves messed up people. So if you're, if you're messed up, well, Jesus loves messed up people. He never will overlook you, no matter how messed up you might be. But if you go to him, even with weak faith, this woman had, had a, a weak faith. It wasn't a robust faith. She didn't know much about Jesus. She wouldn't have passed any theological exams, none of the exams that Dustin's about to take on, on Saturday. She wouldn't have passed a single one. But Jesus loved her. And Jesus tells her, daughter, do you hear that? Daughter, your faith has made you well. If you go to him, even with weak faith, even if it's just out of desperation, even if it's full of doubts, like, I don't think this is true, but I, I have nowhere else to go. Jesus loves people in that situation. 
And if you come to him, bringing all of your doubts with him, he will never leave you or forsake you. Just try Jesus. Try going to him. See if he's not everything that this passage claims that he is. He stops to talk to this woman who not a single person in the entire country would have had anything to do with. He's a personal God. And we also see how he's personal and caring with this little girl. And I love this as well. He, he takes her by the hand and he, he says in Aramaic, uh, Talitha kumi, which our, our translations say, uh, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, that's not a, a great translation, but it's a, it's a hard translation to, uh, to come up with because this is an interesting word. This word Talitha, it, it's hard to translate. It comes from, uh, a word, it comes from the word lamb. And it, it's used almost as, as a pet name. So some scholars, some pastors liken what Jesus said uh, to using a word like, like honey or, or saying sweetheart. That's what Jesus is, that's how he addresses this little girl. So here we have Jesus, the, the great physician, but he's not a, a cold, he's not a clinical physician that couldn't care less about what's going on in your life, but he's a personal God who knows you by name. He goes to this little girl like a father who needs to wake up his daughter. He grabs her by the hand and says, Sweetheart, sweetheart, it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. And he raises her right up out of the grave. So he's a personal God. That's who Jesus is. And we can be certain that he loves you in this way. That's who Jesus is. And also, we can be certain because of what Jesus has done. All right, this is, this is the last, last thing. All right. We've talked already about how by this woman, by touching Jesus and Jesus by touching this, uh, the lifeless body of this young girl, that he has made himself ceremonially unclean. And that's true. But what we know as we go through the whole gospel of Mark and through our Bibles, what we know is that Jesus was made unclean, truly unclean on your behalf. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when we are waiting on God's delays, whatever those look like for us, we can know that this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus has done because Jesus himself faced the most confounding, confusing delay of God's timing of anyone. It was the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prayed to the Father, can you take this cup from me? Father, is there any way that we can skip from this point right to salvation? Is there any way that we can skip the crucifixion and get right to the resurrection? Is this really the way that it has to go? This was the temptation that Jesus faced at the very beginning of his ministry. The very beginning when he was tempted by the devil in the desert. Christ was offered a shortcut to all the riches and the glory of the world. All of this can be yours. You don't have to go through anything else. It can be yours right now. But if he took that deal, if Jesus took that deal, Jesus would not have had you. And you were more important. So he endured those three years of grueling ministry. He endured his torment, his execution on the cross, 
He did all of that because he was going to save you. Christ didn't take any shortcuts to save you. So we can be certain then, regardless of how God is working in our lives, as confusing as it might be in the moment, he's not taking any shortcuts with us either. But he is going to keep us today. He's going to keep us until the end. He's going to walk us through death Unless he returns, he's going to walk us through death, taking us by the hand. He's going to keep us forever. We can be certain of that. His timing, it can be confusing, but it is always, he is always at work in us, working to provide what we truly need out of his great love and grace for us. Let's believe that. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We, that's our prayer. Help us to find comfort. Help us to find assurance in who you are and in what you've done for us, especially uh, during the times of waiting when we cry out and we say, how long, O oh Lord? We, we don't have all the answers. We don't know everything that's going on. We, we desperately need you. In those moments, we pray that you would give us the faith to believe in things unseen. We pray that you would help us to hope in you always. Thank you for loving, broken, messed up people like us and help us uh, out of your love that you first loved us, help us to love you and to love others in return. Do that work in our hearts today, we pray, by your spirit, in your holy name, amen.